Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 395, Forever Newbury. Okay, so 1644 really seems to be a game of two halves. Disaster in the north for Charles and Marston, then quick as a flash. Just when they thought it was all over, it wasn't. A six on a boat, 10,000 men lost with it all at Lost With Eel. But 1644 was not, in fact, a game of two, but of three halves. Charles comes out of the West like another angry wind, so this week we'll hear about a third showdown when the increasingly irritated town of Newbury will cry, Seriously? Again? So far, 1644 is looking like a score draw, but how will it look in December? Well, stick around, gentle listener, stick around. Now look, to be honest, when I say angry wind, warm breeze is more like it. But nonetheless, by early October 1644, Charles was advancing towards Oxford, his HQ, threatened and under siege, but threatened now by weakened parliamentarian forces. His aim was to secure Oxford once more, and to do that, he must raise the sieges of Royalist Donington Castle, west of Oxford near Newbury, and of Basing House, south of Oxford. Beyond that, who knows? Once that was done, he and Rupert thought, maybe London? As it became clear to the Committee of Both Kingdoms that Charles's objective was now Oxford, and beyond Oxford was, well, you know, London, and beyond London was, you know, their complete destruction. Manchester and the Eastern Army was their only game in town, and Manchester was resolutely stationary all the way over northeast at Lingen, where he'd been for weeks. Fairfax was busy directing operations as Governor of York, Leven and the Scottish Army were struggling to finish off Newcastle, and in the process, by the way, sucking up all the resources allocated to the north. And 10,000 soldiers cannot be billeted on the countryside without causing waves of fury from the locals. By November 1644, even Fairfax was complaining that of the £220,000 worth of taxation, allocated to the north in total, the Scots received 200,000 of it, leaving parliamentarian soldiers unpaid. This will yield an increasingly bitter fruit because it would mean that the northern armies become resolutely supportive of the independence in Parliament as forming the political opposition to the Scottish cause and the cause of Presbyterianism. Anyway, Manchester it must be, essentially... And for weeks now, he'd ignored pleas to move from Lincoln, horrified with the violence at Marston, and he'd gone torpid. Finally, the increasingly hysterical cries of the Committee of Both Kingdom worked its magic, and Manchester moved in September. 
But then he starts winding the Committee of Both Kingdoms up again because if instead of marching resolutely with banners flying into the breach and filling it up with royalist dead, he refuses to tax Oxford and sits closer to London at Reading. So the Committee of Both Kingdoms start doing their Rumpelstiltskin thing, hopping around with fury. Manchester patiently explains, this is not a good time. He doesn't have the forces to take on the king. Waller, waiting for help near Oxford with his tiny army now, fumes with impatience. Just get on with it. Cromwell, chafing under the command of his boss and wanting to have at them and get this thing sorted, fumes. Get on with it. Essex doesn't fume, really. He's just relieved that he hasn't been publicly eviscerated for lost with you. And it is rather extraordinary, actually. He does rather get away with it. Anyway, he's busy regathering the few men who had managed to make it back with Skippen and trying to stick a little army back together again at Reading. So, Charles advances from the west and southwest. And this is the walled garden of war in which we are going to play in this episode, the Sandbox of Blood. It is composed of Oxford in the middle of the sandbox, Reading to the east, Donington and Newbury to the west, and Basinghouse to the south. Got your idea? Have you got the sandbox in your mind? Now, Donington Castle in the west was, of course, not to be confused with the much more famous home of the 1980 inaugural Monsters of Rock concert, headlined by Rainbow Saxon and Judas Priest at Castle Donington. Castle Donington, Donington Castle, completely different places. Donington Castle was a medieval rectangular pile of a castle near Newbury, fortified and held for the king by one Sir John Boys. Earthworks, artillery all over the place. He would hold it for 18 months against all comers. Basinghouse, to the south of Oxford, that would be even more of a royalist symbol. Loyalty House, it became known, going through a series of sieges. It was the home of the Marquis of Winchester and included the London Royalist Merchant and Artillery Company man, Marmaduke Rawdon, who we've heard about before. As it happens, Inigo Jones, the architect, ancient now and without family, ends up being trapped there by the siege. It's got a bit of a history. It was besieged by Waller in 1643 but survived, then almost betrayed by the Marquis's brother, but in June 1644 was once more invested by a parliamentary colonel, Richard Norton. Idle Dick, Cromwell later, later called him, affectionately and ironically, because he wanted Norton to take a central role in government and Norton preferred life in his country. But there was nothing idle about Dick, of course, and he surrounded Basinghouse and squeezed and made life thoroughly miserable for it and its inhabitants. Now, like most sieges, those of Donington and Basing were for the most part local affairs, though writ large in the public imagination by the new sheet battles. So, the royalist Mercurius Aulicus published heroic stories of the gentlemen and troopers working side by side over musket and spade. While the Mercurius Britannicus, Marchmont Needham, really got his teeth stuck into Basinghouse, making enormous fun of the Marquis of Winchester, whom he utterly despised. Apparently he'd been disturbed by a cannonball at his ablutions with his trousers down. For Needham, this meant the sun was shining, and so he made hay and called him the untrust Marquis, and at every siege I hear, though there may be no storming, Yet there is a tempest ever in his breeches. After the joke, though, the real hit 
You understand, then, the courage and disgrace of this dreadful pigwiggin, this scarecrow of honour. Which is interesting, since my mother always used the word pigwiggin, and I thought she was just talking small pigs, you know, pigwiggin, but now I learn at the age of 59 that it is in fact also a word, also pigwidgin, a word recorded first in 1594. So, a pigwiggin means a sprite, a small, insignificant person. Well, I never did the Things You Learn podcasting. So let us together revive the word pigwiggin. Anyway, New Sheep Wars, Basinghouse and Donington captured the public imagination just as Latham House and Brampton Bryant had before. But now they'd acquired strategic significance as well. So the Committee of Both Kingdoms, pleased to Manchester to move his bottom into gear, still fell on deaf ears. Manchester's men were unpaid, poorly supplied. He demanded reinforcements before he would shift. Almost as though he didn't want to fight at all anymore. But his hand was to be forced. It was time for a bit more angry winding. This time an experienced English soldier from Flanders, newly arrived on the King's forces, called Harry Gage. He had brought munitions and arms from Spain and now made a cameo appearance. He decided to take control of 250 horse and 400 foot from the garrison at Oxford and he fell on Colonel Norton at Basinghouse like the proverbial wolf on the woolly enclosure, drove him off and returned to Oxford after raiding the town of Basingstoke and completely replenishing all Oxford's stores. Apparently, Oxford had a market that day. A lot of cheese. When he returned to Oxford, everyone went potty with enthusiasm. By January, sadly, Gage was dead and is buried in Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford, where he lies to this day, still roundly pursued by the cheesemakers of Basingstoke. Full of confidence now, Charles advanced suddenly on the 15th of October towards the other guardian of Oxford, Donington Castle, and at last realisation dawned in the Mancunian breast. Finally, Manchester moved towards an agreed rendezvous at Basingstoke. Waller bought the remnants of his forces from Abingdon, Essex took the field again with Philip Skippen with their remnants from Lostwithiel. I did say Charles was going to regret that decision to let them go, because man... They were cross, and looking to return the insults of the Cornish royalists at Lostwithiel with compound interest. When Manchester arrived at Basingstoke, the situation was finally transformed in Parliament's favour. With everybody together, their combined armies totaled 19,000. Once more, Charles was now heavily outnumbered. Charles, though, wasn't worried as he headed towards Donington. He'd cambled that he'd be joined by a force of 5,000 of Rupert's reconstituted army called the Northern Horse. And anyway, he reckoned he had plenty of time. It would take ages for the parliamentarian commanders to get it together before he relieved Donington and was sitting pretty reinforced with Rupert and his Northern Horse. And when that happened, well, he'd be hunter again rather than hunted. He had a point about the parliamentarian boys because, boy, had those lot fallen out. We know Essex and Waller already couldn't stand each other. Now both Waller and Cromwell were livid with Manchester's hanging about. Meanwhile, Manchester had taken just about as much as he could take from his bolshy lieutenant of horse. Despite Manchester's efforts, Cromwell and Crawford had just not patched things up. Oliver objected strenuously to Crawford's consistent efforts to purge the army soldiery of independence on the basis of insufficient religious conformity, whatever their fighting skills or passion for Parliament's cause might be. In Cromwell's view, their soldiers' loyalty, 
That was the thing, and the Scots' demand for religious orthodoxy offended in his mind against practical, common sense, getting the job done, and against conscience. So outraged was he that he had gone as far as to ask Manchester to have Crawford removed from his command completely. Honestly, Manchester rather agreed with Crawford's fear of Cromwell's horribly egalitarian recruitment methods, and Cromwell's popularity with the London press didn't make things any easier for him. So, the long and short, there was trouble brewing, and the committee of both kingdoms knew it full well. So to try to keep things going, they sent orders that the combined armies must be ruled by a sort of army council. A camel committee, basically. Not a great way to run an army, you might think. So, Charles went to Donington, the besieging parliamentarians ran away, and just south of the guns of Donington Castle, he sat down to wait for the northern horse in a nice, comfy, well-defended spot outside Newbury. He was safely sat in a wedge of land bordered by the rivers Lambourne and Kennet. Spina Hill, later his west, Clay Hill to his east, with the added bonus of a large mansion house in the middle, Shaw House. He might even have felt smug. He wouldn't necessarily stay that way because Charles's spot between the two rivers might well act as a great defensive position, but if it just so happened that an army of 19,000 to Charles's 9,000 happened by and noticed they were there, it could turn equally into a trap. And on the 22nd of October, despite the heroic efforts of arguments, rain, mud and cold, that was exactly what happened. That is bad news for Charles. But on the 26th of October, the Parliamentary Army Council all gathered together because they didn't like what they saw of Charles's position. It looked strong, difficult to get at. What were they to do? Now, the Second Battle of Newbury is a busy little battle, as it happens, because there is a battle coming up, if you hadn't realised it. The Army Council, through gritted teeth, came up with a rather ambitious attack plan. They drew up initially in the east on Clay Hill, facing the king, sat behind the Lambourne River with his artillery. Manchester stayed there with his lot, looking threatening and butch. That night, a big contingent then set out under Waller and Cromwell in a massive, wide arc, north and westward, north of Donington Castle, to avoid detection, which was sneaky. They'd appear with surprise on their side, on Charles's western side from Spean Hill. The plan was basically to hit Charles from two sides and squish. Imagine two wafers, block of ice cream in the middle. Squish, a mush of cream and ice. That was Charles's future. It was a parlous situation and make no mistake, Charles and 9,000 men with one army equal his side to the east, another due to appear from the west. Northern horse, nowhere to be seen. I'd have been in a right old panic. But come the morning of the 27th of October, that's exactly the situation he faced when Manchester's contingent attacked from Clay Hill bright and early at 7 o'clock in the morning. Their job to keep the king's attention eastwards until Waller and his western wafer arrived to start the squishing from the west. It all went swimmingly well to begin with. They pushed the royalist foot back. Though in their enthusiasm, they then crossed the Lambourne River, which was a mistake, split up their contingent and wasn't in the plan. Now they were overextended and split up. Charles counterattacked. The guns of Donning Donnington enfiladed them from the north. Enfiladed them, 
I think that's the word, particularly nasty from the side because the cannonballs travelled all the way along the length of the line. So that dampened the enthusiasm of the parliamentarian army a tad, so they legged it back to the safety of Clay Hill, and an artillery battle then ensued from about nine o'clock in the morning. At two o'clock in the afternoon, finally, finally, the Western Wafer arrived, drew up their artillery on Speen Hill and started firing. Sadly, it just so happens that sneaky thing hadn't worked. The folks in Donington Castle had heard them and sent word to Charles. So, instead of surprise, they found themselves surprised in their turn and looking at barricades and hedges fortified against them by Prince Morris. Nevertheless, they were here, there was a job to be done, so they charged. Down went Skippen's foot down the hill. Now, they had a point to prove, and to their delight, they saw that opposite them were the Cornish boys they'd met in Lostwithiel. So, they proved their point, ferociously attacking the barricades. The Corns fought back, but after an hour had had too much, broke and fled. It was looking good for Skippen. The cavalry on the right wing were also met with some success and almost captured the King and the Prince of Wales before their reserves held them up. On the left, Arthur Hazelrig was the senior commander, he of the lobsters and the impeachment of Stratford and all. He and Cromwell found the going tough. There were hedges, ditches, and the guns of Donington were doing their enfilading thing on them now. And then George Goring counterattacked with the Royalist horse, and that was it. Hazelrig and Cromwell were sent packing. Now, I think supporters of the Cromwell Ain't Ever Beaten Brigade claim Hazelrig was in command at this one, so this doesn't count. But whatever... Newbury too was not Oliver's finest military moment, beaten by a drunken libertine like George Goring, Tusk. Now firing the artillery from Speen Hill had been the sign for Manchester to start a new attack from the east, Clay Hill, as part of the squishing process. That doesn't seem to have happened though, and it was getting dark before finally he did set off down the hill, got nowhere and was driven back. In the gloom, then Parliament's soldiers started firing at each other by mistake, so although some claimed that the Cavaliers were now in a right or panic, there was no going on. So, they drew back to Speen and Clay Hills, have a bit of a good night's kip, and then tomorrow they'd get back to it and Charles would duly be mushed. In the morning, when they got up bright and early, they looked down on the field of the coming battle, they saw that wedge of land between Kennet and Lambourne, and they saw that it was empty. Would you, Adam and Evit, Charles had gone, disappeared, evaporated. At midnight, cool as a cucumber, he had placed his army into stealth mode and they'd gone north and east as fast as the warmest of breezes would carry them. No one heard nothing. Looking down and realising then what had happened, Cromwell was sent after them, but he was way too late. By the time he set off, Charles was snugly settled under the walls of the Royalist garrison at Wallingford. He had done a Houdini. Well, Manchester and Waller did what you would, of course, and declared a massive victory, which was duly all over the press. Obviously, this would be the perfect time to take the undefended Donington Castle now. They'd just defeated the king, so he was nothing to worry about, obviously. And they knew that because that was all over the London news sheets. So, they left a small team to take Donington Castle and sent another team down to Basing and returned London Woods, there to set up winter quarters. Job done. 
Charles, though, was not finished, whatever those new sheets might say. He hooked up with Rupert at Oxford and now had 15,000 men, so he went back to the party, unfashionably late now, November, expecting to find the Parliament's army doing the necessary at Donington and planning now to do his own bit of smushing with his rejuvenated army. Sadly, he was disappointed he found the enemy gone, with only a feeble contingent outside Donington, so he drove them off. It is interesting what a Newbury three would have brought. You've got to feel the initiative, and the momentum was with Charles, now with his talisman Rupert by his side. Meanwhile, the parliamentarian command were at each other's throats. I think it would have been interesting. But instead... The parliamentarian commanders were all now intent not on beating up the king, but on beating up each other. Things were not going as they should have done, and it was time to work out why and put it right. We'll hear all about that in the next episode. Charles, meanwhile, had achieved his objective, raised the sieges of Donington and Basing, and thereby secured Oxford. He could take up winter quarters with some satisfaction that the year had ended on something of a high. You and I, however, are not done with the year's campaigning. You and I are going north to Scotland with Montrose and friends. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's talk first, though, of a man called Alistair McCullough. Alistair McCullough was a Highland Scot, more specifically a MacDonald Alistair was the son of a man with a claim to be chieftain of the Inmore, a splinter of the old MacDonald, Lord of the Isles clan. McCullough's dad had been involved, unsuccessfully, in a fierce succession dispute and as a result, wide MacDonald lands in Kintyre, Jorah and Isla were lost and lost, furthermore, to the hated Campbells in the early 17th century. So... Alastair was brought up instead on the island of Colonsay in the Western Isles, burning with injustice, nursing a deep, fiery hatred of the Campbells and all their works, and looking for any way he could find to get those lands and his rights back. In 1638, McCullough then became involved with the Earl of Antrim's plans to invade the Highlands from Ireland. That didn't go well then, and it rather crashed and burned. The chief of the Campbells, Argyle, had raided and imprisoned many of McCullough's family instead, though sadly for Argyle and his future happiness, that didn't happen to include Alistair himself or his brother Ranald. They instead managed to flee to Ireland, and they started getting involved in the fighting there, getting involved in the Irish revolt, and generally carrying out a role as a Highland professional warrior. But what you need to remember about McCullough is that what motivated him and his family was not the king or even Antrim or the Irish Rebellion. What motivated him was to A, get his lands back and B, restore the fortunes of the McDonald's, C, take vengeance on the Campbells and D, no seriously, 
take vengeance on the Campbells. Between 1641 and 1644, then, McCullough changes sides three times, even spending a while fighting in Ireland for Munro and the Scottish Covenanters. But in 1643, he got a taste of what he was looking for when he raided Isla and Colonsay, and before he was driven back to Ireland, he managed to acquire a fearsome reputation in the minds of God-fearing inhabitants, or should I say, the Campbell-fearing inhabitants. McCullough had a fearsome reputation as a warrior, though maybe not a household name, I don't know, you tell me, but it is he who invents something which I think is pretty famous. He invents it according to the historian David Stevenson at a battle against the Ulster settlers in February 1642. I will reveal what this invention was in a while at a place called Tippermuir. First of all, back to Montrose, because that's where we're going with all this. We've heard that Montrose had tried and failed in early 1644 to invade Scotland for his kin. He had been beaten back and all the Carlisle soldiers with him had gone home. Meanwhile, though, the Gordons in the northeast, Catholics and King people, had actually risen in anticipation of Montreux tipping up at the head of a massive all-conquering army, which was very poor timing given the absence of said all-conquering army. As a result, Argyll had also visited the Gordons at the head of a Covenanter army, conquered all the Gordons and imprisoned the Earl. So, in the words of the Who, they won't get fooled again. This will be a problem for Montrose. So, there's the scene. Montrose kicking his heels, desperate to raise the standard for his beloved king in Scotland. Not sure how to do it. McCullough, desperate to regain his inheritance from Argyll and his clan of hated Campbells. And the Earl of Antrim, desperate also to regain his MacDonald inheritance from, you guessed it, Argyll and his Campbells. They will find the blue paper for the firework of their hopes in Ireland. In Ireland, the cessation or the temporary truce agreement between King and Confederacy was now in force. It had split the Protestants. For Parliament, the Scottish commander in Ulster, Munro, had been given command of all the British forces, but coordination with the parliamentarian English was very poor. Meanwhile, Protestants in the Pale, the Royalists, under Ormond, hated this deal with the Confederate Irish. Some of them even defected to Parliament in objection. And meanwhile, the Confederates themselves were divided and squabbling. Ormond, meanwhile, was responsible for negotiating a proper long-term peace with the Confederates and the King, and it was the hospital ball to end all hospital balls. I have to say, I feel for Ormond. He has a bum rap throughout this entire shebang, an impossible job. But there was one thing about the cessation. It gave Antrim the breathing space from all these marauding armies that he needed. And so in July... After all those failed promises to Henrietta Maria and Charles, all the wreckage he had delivered to royal hopes in Scotland when his plans were revealed, well, the lad finally came through. He recruited McCullough, excited him with a plan to regain both of their inheritances and with delivered the wherewithal to boot. And so, in July 1644, McCullough sailed to Scotland with a little starter army of 2,000 warriors for the glory of the King's cause. Well, for the glory of the MacDonald, to be honest, but look, if the cap fits. They landed in Kintyre and started to try and 
get a full army together, but things did not start well. He had enormous trouble recruiting more soldiers. Many Highlanders just saw one more invader in town. So down in the mouth by all this was McCullough that he turned to leave and give up, only to find that the ships on which he'd been brought from Ireland had been destroyed by the English parliamentary ships. There is a deep irony there, and I know you do love a deep irony. McCullough and Montrose's campaign might never have been if the English had just let McCullough go home. But, deprived of an escape route, McCullough and his band struck into the Highlands, trying to raise support, along and then crossing the Great Glen into Badenoch, towards the northeast, where their best supporters would probably lie, only to find that the Royalist support had been crushed there by the disappointments earlier in the year, I told you it would be important. The Gordons had decided that going gentle into the good night was in fact not a bad idea after all, and were quite content for the moment to embrace the dying of the light. Dylan would have been most disappointed, but there we are. Down south, Montrose probably heard about McCullough's invasion around about the 18th of August, and of course he resolved to sneak into Scotland, avoid the Covenanters and join them, and fulfil his destiny. He sent instructions to McCullough to meet him in Athol in the Central Highlands and travel there with just two companions, incognito of course. And in the Montrose idiom, there had to be some more romance than that. So of course, he pretended to be the groom. Surely no one would suspect the King's Lieutenant General to be dressed as a lowly groom. North they went incognitoing furiously all the way for King and Country, until they came to the house of Montrose's kinsman, Patrick Graham, the romantically called Black Pate of Inchbracky. Black Pate, due to a gunpowder accident that had disfigured him. Off then they set together across the Highland Mountains towards Athol and McCullough and Destiny. Meanwhile, McCullough had finally managed to raise the clans, the clans of Athol. Hooray! Cry Andrew and all that. Unfortunately, small flaw in the plan, he'd managed to raise them not to help him, but to try and kill him. The Robertsons and Stuarts had taken up arms to repel what they saw as the wild Gaelic Irish invaders. So things were looking again unpromising, shall we say. Into this situation then came Montrose just in the nick of time. The presence of his curly locks, and probably more important, his status, transformed this situation because he brought legitimacy. He called the Stuarts and the Robertsons to talk and they came. After all, Montrose was certifiably not a foreigner. He was one of them, a Scottish noble bearing all the power and expectations for loyalty of his peers. And he was a lowlander. And he also came bearing the king's commission. Now, suspicion of the Highlander ran deep in Scottish lowland society. But Montrose gave McCullough all the legitimacy he needed. The result of this was that the Stuarts and Robertsons agreed to fight instead for King and Montrose. The blue touch paper had been lit. Montrose raised the royal standard, and if C.V. Wedgwood is to be believed, he put on Highland dress and stuck a sprig of yellow oats in his bonnet. Hopefully I'm not getting carried away with the sheer, well, Robert Louis Stevenson, Walter Scottness of it all. Now, Montrose's opponents, the Covenanters, would prove consistently to underestimate Montrose, or at least that is one interpretation. The other 
is that they firmly kept their eyes on the main prize. The main prize, as far as they were concerned, lay in winning the war in England and defeating the king, from which thing all good things would flow. They do get quite a lot of stick for repeatedly and consistently doing the underestimating Montrose thing. But look, truth be told, and it must, ladies and gentlemen, because, uh, because as the bard tells us, the truth will out. They at least had a stronger grasp of the big S strategy than one of their opponents, namely Alistair McCullough. McCullough would be constantly prioritising the needs of the MacDonald clan and the damnation of the Campbells and therefore going back to the Highlands at inconvenient moments. Without understanding that the only way that his objectives could be achieved permanently and securely was to defeat the Covenanters. Montrose knew this very well, but he could not beat it into the heads of his Highland allies and it will constantly undermine his cause. Anyway, back to the Covenanters' faults instead. They did in fact take quite a while to respond at all to Montrose, and when they did, they refused to withdraw any hardened, experienced soldiers from the battle in England, the big S thing again. Instead, they finally got round to ordering levies from Lothian and central Scotland to assemble at Perth. Montrose, though, did not wait for the levies to really get their act together. He moved fast towards Perth and there, four miles west of the town, at the village of Tippermuir on the 1st of September 1644, the Covenanter levies of 6,000 faced a mere 2,000 gales and highlanders, commanded by a giant of a MacDonald and a bloke who seemed to have yellow oats stuck into his hat, but whose army, sadly, only had enough gunpowder for one shot each. So, 2,000 blokes with one shot each versus a well-equipped army twice their size with banners declaring Jesus and no quarter. Presumably there's only one, one way this can go. Not really sure Jesus would have approved of no quarter, would he? Anyway, minor point. That then brings us to McCullough and the aforementioned famous invention. The Great Reveal. Alison McCullough invented the Highland Charge. A bit of context is important. There had been a specialist warrior class for a while in Scotland and Ireland, professionals of high status and rights, the Galaglass. But they had fought with a two-handed sword, by and large, and heavy male armour with tactics to suit, and they were long gone, banished by pike and musket. This new world with musket and pike demanded new strategies. Now, the Highland Charge was a lot more than I always imagined it to be, i.e. 15 stone of hairy Highlander running at you very, very quickly, yelling at the top of their voice that they're not feeling friendly today. In fact, it turns out it was a carefully thought out and constructed strategy to combat musket and pike. There was a process involved. Firstly, the Highlanders would approach their enemy, bearing loaded muskets. And that was a proper eye-opener for me too. I imagined only swords, not muskets. But anyway, there you go. They line up. They would let loose their volley, and the enemy would also let loose their first volley in reply, all very civilised and organised. The enemy would then presumably concentrate on reloading their muskets for a second shot. And that is a job that requires concentration, diligence, and most importantly, time, especially with 17th century muskets. While they were doing that, if they cared to look up or listen, they would notice that the Highlanders were not so engaged. 
Instead, they had immediately dropped their muskets, drawn a one-handed basket-hilted sword and were legging it towards their enemies, including the requisite yelling about their personal feelings and immediate intentions. Now, having 15 stone of hairy Highlander running at you in an unfriendly manner, in fact, even the ones who had taken trouble to shave their legs the night before, was not the best environment for the fiddly job of loading a musket. So, if done correctly, the Highlanders would be on you before the loading process was done. The receiving enemy of the charge would therefore be armed with unloaded muskets, which did not have bayonets in those days, and so they were effectively armed with an unwieldy club. Now, there was a problem with this. Armies had gone to the trouble of trying to deal with such a situation, and so had provided pikemen, who were supposed to protect the musket men while they reloaded. Which brings us to the third element of the Highlanders' arms, the small shield, the target a wooden shield covered in leather. With this, the charging Highlander would catch the point of the pike and then hack off the pike's metal point, leaving the enemy holding a stick, more suitable for the cultivation of runner beans than beating off even a smooth-legged Highlander with a bad attitude. It took time in the early 17th century to adopt these tactics, and after all, the Highlanders had been used to wielding heavy two-handed swords. So they had to be re-equipped with musket, single-handed sword and target and retrained. It had been assumed that probably it was Montrose who'd invented the tactic, but Stevenson has instead identified the Battle of Larney in Ireland. Just in case this is useful for you, if you happen to be in a situation, here is a piece of advice about how to beat the Highland Charge from a man who'd survived one. If your fire is given at a distance, you will probably be broke for you never get time to load a second cartridge. And if you give way, you may give your infantry for dead, for the Highlanders being without a firelock or any load, no man with his arms, accoutrements, etc. can escape them, and they give no quarter. Essential. Follow the advice of Prince Charles of Prussia at the Battle of Jagendorf in 757. Don't fire until you can see the whites of their eyes. Or, alternatively, Follow the advice of Corporal Jones and don't panic because they don't like it up em. But look, this is an instruction which requires experience, confidence, organisation and superb drill to carry out. What we're talking about here is a bunch of recent recruits with none of that. And by the time the Highlanders reached them at Tippermuir, they were ready to run anyway. And so they did. They did. And they died which is another less romantic, floppy-haired and glorious theme of Montrose's campaigns. The numbers killed in the actual fighting bit itself were relatively low, but the numbers killed during the running away stage were horrific. To be fair to the Highlanders, they did, after all, face an army whose banners had proclaimed no quarter. So, you know, goose, gander, sauce, all that sort of thing. But still, mercy was at a premium. The Battle of Tippermuir in September 1644, won against massive odds, was extraordinary. In quick order, Montrose then routed another Covenanter army at Aberdeen and then allowed his little army to sack Aberdeen for three days, with probably about 150 civilians killed. This was a big mistake. The powerful royalist Gordons looked at this and they kept their own counsel rather than joining in with his rebellion and it confirmed 
every lowland prejudice against the Gaelic Highlander. So it did not help attract supporters to the royal banner, the covenant that the people of Scotland had signed up to in their communities across the land seemed a much better description to them of the values they held rather than this royalist army. Nonetheless, Montrose's campaign had electrified Scotland. Argyll and his covenanting army were forced to start to draw resources from England. And despite numerical superiority, they could never catch Montrose and McCullough. They always had better intelligence, they were quicker and nimbler, they knew the land, they always stayed a step ahead and melted back into the highlands. But for now, Montrose was forced to head back into the highlands to try again to convince the clans now was the time to throw off the Campbell yoke and join him in the name of the king and also to satisfy McCullough's desire for revenge. So... They descended to the Campbell lands and they took their revenge for ancient wrongs. They torched them. We left neither house nor hold unburned, nor corn nor cattle that belonged to the whole name of Campbell, they boasted. A clan Ranald historian claimed they'd killed 895 men without battle or skirmish having taken place and they had wasted Argyle and left it like a desert. Grimly, Argyle deployed the full resources of the Covenant estate and followed them into the Great Glen towards Inverlochy. There he laid out a plan to trap his enemy in the Glen and eradicate this rebel and distraction once and for always. That is for a future episode, though. Because that's the end of fighting for 1644. I mean, it's not. There's lots of wordy fighting to come in the next episode, but we'll leave that to next time. But you know me, I don't like to leave on a downer, but I think I might just have to this week because I think we must say goodbye to a now oddly forgotten figure, William Lord. The Archbishop had been put on trial in March 1644 and it had dragged on and on, pursued with vindictive, vicious venality by William Prynne. Now, Prynne, you might remember, had been a hero of the early revolution, victimised by Lord and the Star Chamber and mutilated by them. That doesn't make him any more of an attractive character. Unlike Strafford before him, Lord was no longer a threat. Prynne mounted an attack based on dodgy premises of treason and popery and manipulated witnesses and evidence to try and prove them, and failed, pretty much. Politically irrelevant and victimised Lord might be, but broken he was not, and he marshalled his defence with courage and skill. And so the path was the same as his brother-in-arms, Strafford. The Commons realised no court in the land was going to convict him and so passed a Bill of Attainder and badgered the House of Lords to pass it too, which they finally and reluctantly did, just 19 of them, though, turning up to do so. And so on January the 10th, 1645, Lord stood on Tower Hill in the cold to face his execution. Not even willing to let him die in peace and dignity, the Anglo-Irish Presbyterian John Clotworthy harangued him on the scaffold, so much so that Lord eventually turned to talk to his executioner as the gentler and discreeter person. This is a compliment I doubt many executioners have received, and he duly beheaded Lord with as much skill and dispatch as he could. Now look, Lord's reputation is very disputed. Many of these days like his vision of the church, and in the end I think it's fair to say he probably won, looking at the current situation in the Church of England. But he was a disaster for England, he was a disaster for Scotland, 
and I would contend that, however pure his intentions might have been, he was responsible for enormous arrogance and was responsible as anyone for destroying the religious balance England had achieved after half a century of hard work under Elizabeth, and he has blood on his hands. But unlike Strafford, there was no purpose now to his execution. Strafford Strafford had been a real threat to achieving peace, and everyone outside the most extreme royalists agreed he had to go, even people who fought later for the king. Lord, though, was no longer a threat to anyone, and his trial, attainder and execution are a stain on the revolution, and unlike Strafford, no longer served any higher purpose, and I cannot help but feel a bit sorry for him. On the other hand, I must say my slightly sanctimonious conclusion does rather assume Parliament win, which wasn't clear at this point. If Charles had won, well, I imagine Lord would have been every bit as much of a danger as he ever was. Still, there you go, whatever. Well, look, happy, happy. Despite the tone of the ending, I hope you all find again your positive thoughts and happy face and have a week of unbridled good luck and pleasure with lots of great things to eradicate the memory of deaths, burnings and beheadings. And look, during that period, there are probably lots of people doing really nice things for each other, wassailing and all that sort of stuff. I was writing this up just before Christmas as it happens, so maybe I'll leave you with a wassail to lighten the tone. This is Maggie Lane, by the way, what Nicky and David took us to see, and they were fun. Good luck, everyone. And any pigwiggins out there, have a great week as well. For it's your wassail, and it's our wassail, and it's joy be to you, and a jolly wassail. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money.